Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. Thanks for joining us, Brian and Jeff along. And for those of you that listen to our podcast on a regular basis, hey, just want to say thank you for coming back and joining us. For those of you that may be new to the podcast, you know, what we try to do in our podcast each week is really talk about Bible-based subjects, specifically around questions that people have submitted, specifically around important Bible subjects. And Jeff, you know, as anyone who teaches God's Word, we have a responsibility, don't we, to ensure that we're not inserting our opinions to the exclusion of the Scriptures. We should be able to back up anything we say, right, with book, chapter, and verse. I definitely agree with that. And that's why, and I think almost every podcast, we like to refer people back to our website at biblequestions.org, where there's, you know, literally thousand plus, you know, articles on just a very wide variety of subjects. But every time we do that, we also try to say, hey, when you go to the website, read the material, Look at the scriptures in particular, look them up in your Bible, see if it makes sense. Don't take our word for it uh, and, and you'll sort of dig out or study the truth uh, for yourself. Again, based on scripture, because well, unfortunately we have to admit that if you look across Christianity, there is a lot of divergent, contradictory doctrines that are taught, as we'll kind of see later on in today's podcast, and people will offer scripture. Uh, in many cases, to, to back up these statements. But if you dig a little bit deeper, look at uh, the Scripture within its context, look at other Scriptures uh, that teach on the same subject, you know, dig into, you know, definition, meaning of words, historical context, who the audience is, who's speaking, those kinds of things. You will often find that even though it sounds scriptural, even though there is a alleged Scripture that's supposed to support the doctrine, it doesn't. You know, it, it doesn't pass the, the test of truth, unfortunately. That's right. And so anything that we say, anything that we teach or share, same thing. Please go to the scriptures, verify what we've said is true. And, you know, today along that line, we want to take a look at false religious statements. You know, there are many statements that people make and have made over the years that sound accurate, that sound, quote unquote, religious might even sound close to, as you said, Jeff, passages that people use. But yet when we dig a little bit deeper, as Jeff said, we find out that they're not actually correct or maybe they're taken out of context, whatever the case may be. So that's what we want to do today. We want to look at some false religious statements. And to kind of kick things off, we want to talk about the prophet Jeremiah. Now, if you've read the book of Jeremiah, one thing that becomes really clear is that Jeremiah was a faithful servant of the Lord. In fact, one of the things that I've always appreciated about the prophets is they were often asked to do things like preach to people that didn't want to hear the truth, uh, and as a result, sometimes were physically threatened. Well, that certainly fits Jeremiah's life because he loved his people. He found it hard to believe early on that there weren't some who still loved the truth. And he came to find out that his people rejected God, and it was difficult for him to deal with. In fact, he's called the weeping prophet because he cried at, at how much wickedness there was in his uh, nation. 
and the fact that the Israelites are going to be carried off into captivity, those kinds of things. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16, he tried to get them to seek the old paths, and they said, we will not walk in it. So they had degraded themselves, you might say, over time to the point where they just weren't interested in the truth. And we kind of see that today, right? And, and it's cyclical. We see it with any major society or civilization. Eventually, this is what can happen. So in, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, you know, he wept for their unfaithfulness. Now, as a prophet of God, in addition to just once again, those feelings he had, you know, his life was threatened because they didn't like what he was saying. And of course, he was just a spokesman for God. So they were, as we might say, sometimes shooting the messenger. In fact, it became so bad that God told him not to pray for his people because of their wickedness, uh, because God wasn't going to hear them when they cried out. I mean, if you're not faithful, the scriptures make it clear, God will not hear your prayers. And so, you know, Jeremiah had to deal with other false prophets who were telling the people, hey, there's going to be peace. You know, here's Jeremiah telling you there's going to be calamity, if you will. You're going to be carried off into captivity. No, 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 that's not what's going to happen. There's going to be peace. So, Jeff, if you wouldn't mind, could you read for our listeners Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 and 17, where we see this? Certainly. Beginning of verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. Basically, they're lying to the people, sounds like. Yeah, definitely. And, and not only were they contradicting Jeremiah, but they were invoking the Lord's name. The Lord has said, you shall have peace. The Lord never told them that. In fact, the Lord was telling Jeremiah the opposite. And so, you know, an analogy to us today is there are many people in the religious world that say all sorts of things in the name of the Lord, but yet... That's not what God said. We have a responsibility to verify that. Now, God has always expected his word to be spoken faithfully. And so I'll call the attention uh, to verses 28 and 29 there of Jeremiah 23, where he goes on to say, The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer, that breaks the rock in pieces. So, Jeff, I like that statement, right? Because God's just saying, you know, my truth will shatter all these false statements. True. Well, and in some ways, I'm, I'm a little bit shocked that they would presume to take upon themselves, oh, yes, the Lord spoke to me, and he says you guys are all right. Keep on doing what you're doing. He's pleased with what you're doing. So basically giving them, uh, you know, false, uh, false assurances. Uh, and encourage him to continue sinning. Yeah, and the beauty of God's word is when you can present book, chapter, and verse, as we like to say, preaching or teaching to somebody. They make a claim. You say, well, let's see what the Bible says. And the Bible says something, let's say, completely opposite. Well, as it mentions there in verse 29, God's word breaks those false doctrines into pieces. It really proves what God actually said. And so, you know, we want to think about how the Bible uses a lot of analogies to fire. I like how it talks about it purifies, it reveals, it gets rid of impurities, all these different things. Well, certainly, once again, it can be like a fire when it comes to comparing statements and things that people will say today. So 
Last point here, then I'll turn it over to you, Jeff, and that's, you know, in our world today, many people in and out of the church, as we said early on, make statements which sound good, but when they are put to the test, they are consumed and shattered by the truth of God's Word. So in today's podcast, we want to take a look at some statements that are often made, which on the surface sound good, and as a result are often accepted by people as truth. Why is that? Well, they're not verifying if what's being said. It just sounds good, and you know, so-and-so, they're so knowledgeable, or that's my pastor or preacher. So I'm just going to listen to what they say. We have a responsibility to verify that. And, and because these kinds of statements can lead people astray, give them false hope, and ultimately cause their soul to be lost. So, you know, we want to today look at these statements. We want to test the validity of these statements by looking into God's Word and really just kind of see how they stand up to the truth. Well, and I appreciate you tying that into today's modern religious leaders whether they're called you know, pastor or reverend or preacher or rabbi, or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever term. Um, because, you know, as you noted from Jeremiah, you know, Old Testament people would take it upon themselves to speak in the name of the Lord. Uh, in New Testament times, we have some of the various Jewish sects, you know, Sadducees and Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders of the day proclaiming false doctrine. Uh, and so it is today. We've got, as I said earlier, we've got all these different religious groups that are teaching contradictory things one to another. So, you know, they can't all be right. You know, most are wrong, right? Um, and unfortunately, people that just sort of blindly follow their leaders and accept what their leaders say at face value. Um, I hate to say it, but Jesus had something that's kind of equivalent to that saying, if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the ditch. Yeah, that's the truth. And so we would definitely encourage, uh, as we said at the top of the podcast for our listeners, to you know take the scriptures we're, we're offering, dig into them, especially if they're contrary to what you're currently hearing you know, in your religious services, uh, and see if you can determine the truth. So Brian, I guess we're uh, ready to go into the first section. Is that fair? Yeah, let's take a look at the first statement and see if it actually stands up to the truth. Yeah, so the first one we have, uh, and you can kind of hear a couple of different variations, is one church is as good as another. Um, there you may have heard a similar phrase, uh, you know, join the church of your choice. Um, and in today's world, you know, a lot of people... You know, think that, well, all you really need to do, you know, is to be religious or believe in God or, you know, accept Jesus as your personal savior, etc. cetera. Uh, and then, you know, if you want to, you can, you know, connect yourself with some religious group, uh, regardless of the name, etc. And there certainly are a lot of religious groups. I mean, you know, almost on every uh, corner, if you will, uh, where you live. Or, um, when we dig into the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, uh, Christianity, as portrayed in the New Testament, tends to be a lot more uh, exclusive, if I could use that term. Uh, for instance, uh, Brian, can I get you to read Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6? Yeah, here it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So uh, from this, you know, very first scripture, you know, we understand there are a lot of, if you will, ones associated with Christianity, which not two, <laughs> not many, one. 
And as we, you know, kind of dig into other scriptures, we kind of understand that that theme of oneness or of unity uh, permeates the, the New Testament. Uh, for example, if we come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writing to the Corinthians uh, who had um, a lot of challenges, a lot of problems, uh, in, including people kind of beginning to rally around different people. In fact, if you you know read the, the first chapter of First Corinthians, you'll understand that you know some of them were bragging. You know, I think basically you know who had baptized them. You know, well, well I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by you know Peter. I was baptized, etc. So First Corinthians one verse ten. Now I plead with you, brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, the only way we can do that uh, religiously, to speak the same thing, you know, we need to be united around the truth of God's word. We need to be united around, you know, the religious group, if you will, that consistently teaches God's word uh, exclusively and, and not add a bunch of you know man-made doctrines and not omit what uh, God's word ha has to say. Uh, other verses that pretty much say the same thing, Romans chapter 12, verse 5, so we being many are one body. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, for we though many are one bread and one body, you know, using again metaphors or analogies, as Brian said earlier, for we all partake of that one bread. Second uh, Corinthians 13, verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell, be complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule, and let us be of the same mind. So... Basically, any religious group, local congregation, church that does not practice the truth, and I'm reminded of, you know, in the legal system, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then they're not speaking the same thing. Uh, so from that perspective, you know, one, one church is not as good as another because they're all teaching different doctrines, contradictory doctrines, conflicting doctrines. You know, some other uh, statements... Uh, similar to join the church of your choice. Um, uh, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. Or you might hear there are many roads to heaven. Again, you know, these words, like we heard the words of uh, the false prophets in Jeremiah's time, might give you a sense of comfort, but it's a false sense of comfort because uh, these phrases, these words directly conflict with God's word. You know, as as we saw in the previous uh, scriptures I just mentioned a few moments ago, you know, as well as uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. You know, this concept, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you are sincere. Well, just think of how sincere Saul of Tarsus was when he was persecuting Christians. Very sincere. Uh, you know, lived in all good conscience <laughs> until the present day. That includes when he was, you know, uh, consenting to the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, uh, as well as actively persecuting Christians. Again, it, it does matter what you believe. 
you know, sometimes we also hear a phrase like, you know, unity and diversity uh, based on accepting or tolerating, you know, each other from a religious perspective. And certainly we're not authorized to go out and, you know, physically fight or persecute, you know, people we disagree with religiously. But we really cannot be united and all teaching different things. Uh, that's just inconsistent. And it's not consistent with God's word, especially, for example, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. It says, and this is Jesus speaking during the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, acknowledge him as Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So basically, to you know, put it into a summation, you know, any local group of alleged Christians, you know, joined together as a local church, local congregation, can only be considered, you know, united, speaking the same thing, faithful, if they practice what is consistent with God's word. And how do we know that? By searching the scriptures, just like the Bereans did. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Brian, any thoughts? Yeah, and to that last point you made, you know, even if you're a member of the Lord's church, and by Lord's church, you know, we mean those, as you pointed out, that are practicing what we read about in the New Testament. Jesus is the head, not a council, not the Pope. Jesus, that's the head of the church. It's following his word. Even within those congregations, there can be some issues, right, where maybe they're following the word pretty closely, but they have some problems, like much like Jesus pointed out in Revelation 1 and 2 with some of those churches. And so you just have to be careful that you don't fall into this trap of, well, I belong to the Lord's church. They, you know, worship in the same way that the Lord wants us to worship. But yet there are some things that that church are doing, maybe using instrumental music, maybe, you know, feeding everybody in the world, all these different things, not using the treasury properly, whatever it might be. We just have to be careful because it can be easy to fall into that chapel. Well, it's the Lord's church, so therefore I'm good, <laughs> you know, so anyhow. Well, and I, I think that's a good point. And I guess I would uh, direct our readers back to First uh, Corinthians and the, just the whole letter that Paul wrote to Christians in Corinth. They had massive problems, and every single one of them, Paul said, okay, here's the topic, you're wrong in this way, here's what you need to do to fix it. Boom, 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 just throughout the entire letter, you know, one after another. They had all kinds of problems, and it wasn't a, well, you know, you can be united in your diversity, and you can agree to disagree, and yes, after all, you are, you were baptized in order to have the forgiveness of sins, and now you've been saved, and it doesn't matter, just kind of get along nicely. No, he just went just straight to the source of the various uh, issues, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, dealt with every single one of them, right? Uh, in, in fact, as, as I recall, there were uh, well, let's just leave it at a number, which is why I would suggest listeners, uh, you know, read the entire book and get a sense that, you know, be just belonging to a church that, you know, perhaps has the right name or has the right uh, uh, plan of salvation is not a guarantee of, you know, being acceptable to God. Yeah, that's a good suggestion because you're right. We see the example of how it was dealt with and how it couldn't be accepted to so-called be united in diversity, which is really an oxymoron. But anyhow, okay. So what's the next one? Next one is, uh, it just feels right. Or, you know, God just wants me to be happy. Now, sometimes if you talk to people about sin in their life, they make these statements. 
And in essence, what they're doing is they're justifying their sinful relationships and practices, if you will, based on how they feel. Oh, God just wants me to be happy. Or why don't I have guilt? You know, for some people, and the Bible talks about, you know, if you sin long enough, you become desensitized to that sin. So it might feel right to you, but of course we know that, you know, this is a tool of the devil, right? When we start justifying our actions based on how we feel, that's certainly a tool of the devil. Now, a good example of this is over in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you know, Saul was emotional when he proclaimed to Samuel, blessed are you of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He kind of came across as being proud of himself, yet he had clearly disobeyed God. Now, I'm going to give you a section for our listeners to, to look at. We won't read all of it, but I want to kind of hit some highlights in here to illustrate this point. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you want to make a note of verses 10 through 23. So in this section of scripture, you know, God gave Saul a job to do, if you will, as king, and that was to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. And if you know a little bit about the Amalekites' history, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they attacked the Israelites, but they did it in kind of a, oh, I don't know, nefarious way, if you will, unethical. I don't know, you know, there are rules of war, and you certainly don't go to the back of the group and attack the children and women. Well, that's exactly what the Amalekites did. So God prophesied back then, I will punish Amalek for what they did to the Israelites. And so now he's asking King Saul to carry this out. Well, King Saul goes and he does some of what God asked him to do, but he didn't utterly destroy them as God requested. So in verse 10, you know, the Lord speaking to Samuel. And in verse 11, he says, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So one good lesson here is if you do most of what God asks you to do, According to God, you haven't performed his commandments because you have to do everything he asks. So Samuel goes to meet Saul, verse 13. This is when Saul makes, you know, this statement, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel makes a real poignant point, if you will. He says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen, which I hear? Didn't God tell you to utterly destroy those animals, right? It says in verse 15, Saul says, you know, I brought, brought them from the Amalekites for the people, spread, you know, spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. So another lesson for us here is you might have good intentions. You may want to offer those to the Lord, but the Lord didn't ask you to do that. He asked you to do something else. So bringing it forward to our you know, world today, there are religions that introduce things into worship and into spiritual practices and their intentions are good, but it's not what God asked for. So how does God view that? He views it once again as you haven't performed the commandments that I've given you. In fact, notice in verse 16, Samuel says it's all, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said. And he goes on to talk about, you know, how when Saul was nothing, God elevated him to be king. Verse 18, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. And then he asks this question in verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And then 20, verse 20, Saul starts making excuses. I have obeyed. Well, he first says, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. <laughs> so it's like his, his, he's not getting it, we might say, right? Um, but I brought back the king and the best of animals in verse 21. Now he's blaming the people. You know, they took sheep, oxen, and so forth to once again sacrifice to the Lord your God. Well, Samuel says, has in verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord.
And then he makes this key statement, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For the rebellion for rebellion is as of the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So the children of Israel, Saul, they felt right, right? It felt good to them uh, to bring back these animals and not even sure why he spared the king. But regardless, you know, it felt right to Saul. He was proud. In fact, he built a monument to himself, which is what somebody did when they had a great victory. He just didn't understand. You can't make any changes to God's word. And regardless of how you feel, it's still considered sin. I mean, think about the children of Israel in Exodus 32 when they felt right about worshiping a golden calf, right? An idol. And they were dancing and singing around as Moses came down off the mountain. They, were, they felt great about that. Obviously, that was total rejection of God. And so another statement we sometimes hear, let your conscience be your guide. Well, our consciences can be wrong, right? Especially as we mentioned earlier, if they're seared because of sin. And so, Jeff, before I move on, any thoughts along that line as it relates to the example of Saul? You know, the only thing I just might add, uh, which we made the point early on, you know, King Saul, you know, he is the you know, supreme monarch ruler, if you will, over the Israelites. So now he is, you know, encouraging the people, certainly leading them astray by, you know, allowing them to do these things, as we said at the top of the podcast, like many religious leaders do today. So not only was he wrong, but also the, the people that, he follow, or that followed him. Yeah, the leaders, like you said earlier, blind lead the blind. They lead you into the ditch. <laughs> you know, you, you just uh, scary. Well, you know, that's when it comes to emotions, you know, getting back to this idea of feeling right. You know, emotions have a place in our spiritual life. And in fact, if you go and look at all the emotions that God gave mankind when he created us, they were all for good reasons. But man has perverted these emotions and, to, and sort of warped them, you know. So, for instance, when you think about, well, what's appropriate emotions that, you know, that we're talking about here? Well, being convicted. So, like in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached to those that had, were responsible for crucifying Jesus, in verse 37, it says they were cut to the heart. And then they said, you know, they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized. So they were convicted. That's a good emotion. Godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. So God has given us a conscience. When we sin, it should bother us and hopefully drives that sorrow, that sorrow drives us to repent. How about rejoicing and weeping with brethren? Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's a good emotion. That's an appropriate emotion. How about being edified through song? Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And if you look at that verse, it makes sense as to why musical instruments are not used under the law of Christ, because God wants us to edify each other with these hymns, with these words, with the encouragement. Now, those who use instruments would say, well, I get, I get even more of that when I play instruments. But God said, no, sing with grace in your hearts to me and edify, admonish, teach your brethren at the same time. All right, how about the flip side of that? Inappropriate emotions. Well, feeling good about sin, right? Like we've kind of been saying all along. So, you know, it might be an unauthorized relationship or some other sinful practice that can lead us to be callous towards sin. 
So if you turn over to Ephesians 4, and I'll ask you if you wouldn't mind, Jeff, to read this. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, God draws this contrast for us through the Holy Spirit about those that are sinful and those, of course, uh, and, and what it does to their heart, I guess I should say. Okay. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk, that's manner of life, as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So this is what can happen to all of us. In fact, I would think, Jeff, we could probably make the argument that this is the methods or the the condition we might say that all of us are in prior to learning about the truth and turning our hearts back to the Lord into the image in which he created us. Oh, and I like that uh, that particular snippet of phrase, you know, past feeling. It's almost like, and there's another, another verse I can't remember where it is at the moment, having your conscience seared as with a hot iron. You can't feel it anymore, and it doesn't bother you like it once did. And that's a scary part about sin, isn't it? If you sin long enough, you not only start to accept it, but you once again, yes, it doesn't bother your conscience. You are, you can get past feeling. In fact, if you go over to Romans chapter 1, we see that the kind of the progression of that, where people start doing all kinds of things, and ultimately they're rejecting God, and they've given themselves over once again to all of these fleshly desires. So that's just an example of an inappropriate emotion, right? I looked it up. First Timothy 4, verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, at least according to the uh, King James Version. Yeah, nice analogy. In fact, I think all of us can relate to that. If you burn yourself for a period of time, you're not, your nerve endings are, are not going to feel what you're touching, for instance. So it is a good analogy. And, you know, one final example here is, is emotionally filled worship service. You know, in the modern religions today, especially community churches, charismatic type religions, many want to come away, you know, having quote unquote experienced something, or they want a warm and fuzzy feeling, as we might say. And what they miss is the fact that, you know, we're, we're not coming to worship to see what we can get from it necessarily. I mean, first and foremost, we're there to worship God. And much like we saw in Colossians 3.16, yeah, there's an element where we admonish and we encourage and uplift one another with songs and those sorts of things. Those are good emotions. But unfortunately, when you look at a lot of the modern worship today, uh, lots of bands, lots of jumping up and down and singing, and yeah, it might make you feel well, but if you look at what God has asked for, that's not what he asked for. So we go back to Saul, right, where... We can do things that make us feel great, but we, we then have to ask the question, is this really what God wants? They, God's not asking us to come and be entertained and, and start to think, well, you know, just singing a few songs and praying and listening to a sermon, that can get kind of boring. Let's just liven it up a little bit. Well, we have to understand that those emotions can derail us, so to speak, and it, it, we have to use emotions as the scriptures define them. Yeah. Yeah, Brian, as you were talking, I was reminded of what Paul told uh, the young Timothy, uh, who's a who is also a preacher. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, rebuke, convince, exhort with all long-suffering teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, <laughs> 
They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Which, in, in many ways, characterizes, I think, as you said, a lot of religious uh, groups, you know, preachers today. You know, they, they preach a very good, motivating, ah, uplifting, oh, it was so wonderful kind of sermon. Often, and tell good stories, but not, not necessarily based on scripture. Uh, and certainly nothing that would get the uh, the audience riled up or step on their toes or convict them of sin. Mm, no, basically he's like tickling their itching ears with fables and things they want to hear, unfortunately. Yeah, it is a good description, isn't it, of what actually is occurring. True. Well, I think that kind of takes us to uh, the next phrase or statement that you may have heard. Uh, and again, there's an emotional uh, aspect to it as well. Uh, dealing with God and love and sin. Uh, you know, God is loving. You know, God will show mercy on us at the end. Or, you know, I, I, I just can't believe God would send, you know, people to hell. Uh, at one point, I think I had a coworker that said, you know, no such place as hell because I just can't believe God would send people to hell. And some might actually quote, you know, part of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 where it does say that God is not willing that any should perish. Okay, keep reading. You know, the rest of the verse, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, connecting of repentance or lack of repentance to perishing. Similarly, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, uh, God speaking to Ezekiel. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? So, yes, indeed, you know, God is not willing that any should perish. Uh, other verses talk about God is love, but God is also just, meaning he has to act in a way that indicates justice. Uh, to suggest that God would not punish those who uh, persist in sin would make him basically unjust. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Uh, Romans chapter 2, a smattering of verses. Verse 2, for we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. Verse 6, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. Uh, one more verse, Brian. Can you go ahead and read First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 17? Sure, yeah. Here it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And once again, just to drive the point home, that you know ultimately there will be judgment, uh, a judgment day. And you can read about it at least with some degree of you know, symbolic language uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 21, if I remember correctly, um, and that God indeed will hold people accountable, that as real as heaven is, 
hell is, as long as heaven is for the saved, hell will be for the lost. Uh, Matthew 24 and uh, Matthew 25. Um, so, yeah, don't think that you can uh, get away from judgment by emphasizing God's love, God's mercy, God's benevolence, to the exclusion of God also being righteous, holy, and just. Brian? Now that last point is so important because I think as parents we can relate to it. You know, if our child does something wrong, they need to be punished. And to say that God loves so much that he would overlook sin, well, in our own court systems, in our society, we wouldn't want a judge to do that in a case where somebody has committed a wrong against us. We'd want them to render a just judgment. And so to your point, God is just, and it would actually make him unjust if he just overlooked the sin of everybody. Yeah, good point. So the next one we want to consider is, God will not hold me accountable for what I do not know. Or sometimes people kind of uh, maybe kiddingly say, you know, ignorance is bliss. So in other words, what I don't know won't hurt me kind of thing. But, you know, to think about God will not hold me accountable for what I do not know, on the surface, kind of makes sense in our human logic, right? Where it's like, well, if I don't know, how can you hold me accountable? Well, think about if you have a car and you drive down the road and you're exceeding the speed limit for, you know, countries that post the speed limit and so forth. Well, they're still going to give you a ticket because they expect you to know what the speed limit is. Or how about paying taxes? Maybe you don't pay taxes on certain things because you don't know that you should. Well, the government's not going to let you get by with that. Or even something like getting a building permit. There's all kinds of things in our world today where if we were to stand before a judge, like we were talking about, and say, well, I just didn't know, they're not going to say, oh, okay. Well, because you didn't know, you're not responsible. We know that they're going to hold us responsible. Well, it's the same for God's law. And so God does not consider ignorance a valid excuse. He tells us in many places in Scripture that it's our responsibility to know. So going back to the old law, in Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 17, if a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. So that makes it pretty clear. God's still holding them accountable for that. Under the law of Christ that we live under today, if we go over to Acts chapter 3, Jeff, could I get you to read verses 13 through 19, where we see a similar principle? Sure. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. And of course, this is Peter uh, addressing the religious rulers after having uh, healed, healed a person. Has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given this man perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets that the Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So verses 17 and 19 are the key verses here. Peter's saying, Brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. Did what? Put Jesus on the cross, crucify him. 
there were many that didn't know what they were doing, right? They listened to the mob or they, they believed the lies from the Pharisees, whatever it might be. So does he, did he say, well, therefore you're not accountable, just those who knew what they were doing? No, he says in verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So they were guilty of sin. You know, another statement that sounds great on the surface, I rely on my pastor, or you could insert any other, you know, evangelist, preacher, whatever. I rely on my pastor because he is so knowledgeable of God's word. You could also insert my good Christian friend or my friend that seems to know a lot about the Bible, whatever it might be, right? You rely on them because they're so knowledgeable of God's word. Well, Philippians 2.12 tells us that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And so that's another fundamental principle. You know, it's the responsibility of all people in general and certainly Christians to build spiritually and to contribute to the church. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, it talks about how it was the Lord's intention. He says he gave himself, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And if you look up that word edifying there, it means a building up. It means increasing in knowledge and so forth of God's word. Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he goes on to say, you know, this enables us or prevents us from being like children, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, uh, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So when you have that knowledge of the Son of God and God's Word, then you're a lot less likely to be carried about by all these false doctrines. And then he says in verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. And then verse 16 is really talking about the church. So when you're a member of a local congregation, verse 16 says the whole body is joined and knit together by which every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share and it causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself and love. So I like this analogy to like our physical bodies, that all of our body parts, if you will, serve a purpose to the greater whole. So our hands help us to pick things up. Our eyes help us to see danger. Our minds help us to discern good and evil, all these things. So going back to verse 11, that's why God appointed in that age apostles and prophets, and certainly in this age evangelists and pastors, which are elders, those who oversee the church, and teachers, like when you teach others or you teach a class, for the equipping or building up of Christians, and that's, you know, Christians are called saints. One final passage here, Jeff, and I'll turn it back over to you, and that's in Colossians 2 verse 8. We have a warning. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So once again, if you say, I rely on my pastor, I, I trust so-and-so because they're so knowledgeable, be careful, because they could cheat you through their philosophy or some misunderstanding they have of the scripture, and therefore you're following, in essence, the principles of the world and not Christ. Yeah, as you were talking, I was reminded of like Matthew chapter 15, like verse 1 through you know, 14 or verse 15, give or take, where, you know, the elite religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, had certain religious practices 
not found in scripture and they'd go around condemning others for it and likewise did that with jesus and his disciples jesus deals with them pretty bluntly uh matthew 15 verse 7 hypocrites well did isaiah prophesy about you saying this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me and in vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men Skip down to verse 12. Then his disciples came to him and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus replies in verse 13, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Next verse, as we were mentioning earlier on in the program, Leave them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. So yes, indeed, don't think that you can avoid accountability by relying on your, in some cases, you know, well-educated, college, seminary, trained religious leaders because they could be wrong and you just follow right along with them. And unfortunately, both suffer the consequences. Yeah, I like that teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. That's it. Well, and as we mentioned earlier, if you look across, you know, the, the practice of Christianity today, across, you know, Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Baptist, Methodist, etc., you know, they're all teaching allegedly from the scriptures, but they're teaching contradictory things. So somewhere in the middle of all that, you've got, by necessity, a lot of man-made doctrine, which renders their worship vain or pointless or purposeless. That's right. Yep. So we got a couple other statements we want to throw in here. Even among some of those who, you know, align themselves with, as Brian said, the Lord's Church. How about this one? I do not need to know all of the Bible to be saved. I do not need to know all of the Bible to be saved. And, you know, Brian, there, there's an element of truth to that. I mean, there's a lot of somewhat more obscure things, you know, a lot of the genealogies as an example that, you know, not necessarily related to salvation. But I think under underlying that statement what some i think mean is i don't need to study the bible or you know i've I've already learned what i need to know and you know i don't really need to study anymore well that's kind of contrary to what the scriptures teach uh second timothy verses 2 verse 15 study to show thyself approved unto god a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. Now, as we said, you don't necessarily need to know all of the Bible because there are some, you know, either obscure passages or, you know, difficult passages, but it does expect us to read and study. Now, that's something else that a lot of people may not realize, that the scriptures are not only meant to be read, but also studied because there's a lot of material in there that does take some degree of actual digging uh, and studying uh, and to uh, learn, you know, what the scriptures actually say. How can we live by the truth if we don't know the truth? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. Uh, how can we know that we are in the truth if we don't know the truth? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where it talks about examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? 1 John 4, 1 talks about needing to defend the truth. Uh, do not believe it, every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. As many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
similar to the points we were making earlier about uh, pastors and preachers leading people astray. How can we teach others if we don't know the truth? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. In fact, Brian, you want to read that passage, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14? Here it says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Yeah. And again, the, you know, the bottom line is, you know, don't think that you've reached a point where you can, you know, stop reading, stop studying, stop learning, because the Bible is indeed a very comprehensive and deep book, uh, some of the things it, it deals with. Uh, Brian, any thoughts before we move on to the next one? Yeah, I'll just say there's another element there, too, and that's we forget. You know, Peter talked in his books that he wrote about, I stir you up by way of reminder. All of us can forget we need to be reminded, or something might be happening in our life, and a scripture that we've heard a million times now resonates differently. So there's just so many benefits, right? True. Uh, So here's another phrase that sometimes you might hear. You know, we need to be patient, long-suffering, toward a... A fellow member, a brother or sister, who is in sin. You know, God is long-suffering, we should be as well. And here again, Brian, you know, there's a degree of ele- uh, degree or an element of truth to that, where, you know, we need to be somewhat patient, give people time to, you know, study, consider, ponder, you know, give them arguments, if you will, that, that are an attempt to get them to see the truth. And some people need, you know, a little bit of time, you know, without being, you know, pressured, so to speak, to realize they're wrong. And yet, at the same time, people might, you know, offer these statements about being long-suffering. Well, you know, how long should we suffer? And they say, well, you know, it's it's been a few years. I was like, mm, don't know about that. Certainly, God uh, encourages Christians to deal with sin and in a fairly quick manner, because after all, person in sin is lost. And if they die in that condition, they're lost eternally. Certainly we see that in the case of Paul talking to the Corinthians again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, dealing with the uh, guilty uh, adulterer that was in their midst that they had tolerated. Brian, sometimes emotions will kind of uh, impact or impair our ability to address sin, you know, particularly if it's someone close to us, you know, close friends, close family, but if we really truly love them, emotionally we might not want to deal with, but intellectually we realize we need to, and we need to address the sin out of love for them and out of a desire for them to repent. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Yes, sin does need to be dealt with and not allowed to go on unchallenged day after month after year. Here's another one, Brian, that sometimes we run into. I do not need to be at every worship service. God does not judge me based on how many worship services I attend. Or, yes, I worship God, you know, once on Sunday, and that's all that he requires. You know, a lot of things, you know, centered around attendance uh, or, or maybe justifying a lack of attendance to, you know, worship services. 
But there are some passages that say, you know, that's wrong attitude. Make a bottom line statement there. Here's one. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So we need to be, you know, coming together, assembling, encouraging one another, etc. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. How can we stir up love and good works if we're not there? In fact, often our absence serves as a source of discouragement. Not only are we not exhorting, but we're also discouraged. And I think even more from an attitude perspective, you know, the reason why we come together, not only to encourage one another, but it's to worship, worship our great God, and that we would want to worship God, you know, every opportunity we have. I'm reminded of Psalms chapter 29, verse 2. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Or Psalms 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. The Lord our God is holy. Again, an attitude. In fact, you may have heard some people ask, well, you know, what's the minimum that I need to attend? It's like, hmm, that probably points to a, a, an improper attitude because, oh, my life is so busy. I got so many different things I want to go do. And okay, so what, what's the minimum I have to do to serve God? It's like, that's, that's not what God would have us do, right? Yeah, one quick thought about one of the points you made as far as being long-suffering toward, you know, a brother or sister who's in sin. I appreciate the nuance that you mentioned, and that is it depends on the sin, right? So if, let's say somebody's been converted, they've been baptized, they have a problem with anger, or they have a problem with language. No doubt, if they commit those sins, we want to address it, but we, to your point, need to give them time, right? We don't necessarily need to be harping on them continually about, oh, it looks like you kind of lost your temper again, you know, so that would be, you know, showing some judgment. Another one, like if someone's an adulterer or they're a murderer, let's say, I think all of us would agree we can't really give them time to repent, right? We need to make sure that it's addressed, and if they don't immediately do something about it, and we see that in our society, and if somebody commits murder, they're immediately arrested, number one, because they could be a threat to others, but number two, so that they can be dealt with, if you will. And so sometimes these aren't cut and dry, we have to use judgment, and that's why the work of elders can be difficult, because, and and Christians in general, I guess, we just have to use judgment, not be overbearing, but also not wait so long that the person starts thinking it's fine, like those in Corinth, to have an adulterer in their presence and they do nothing about it. Yeah, good point. And you, know, you, you, we were talking earlier about you know the longer you practice sin, the more it can sear your conscience and you become less feeling, less sensitive to it. And that can happen to us as members, can it? <laughs> so. Indeed. Okay, so hopefully these statements have shown those of you who are listening that you know the truth shatters all of these false statements, or some of these statements have elements of truth, but they've been twisted to be false statements. And so hopefully you can see how the truth of God's word really helps to establish, you know, what the truth is. And so, you know, just a word of caution. It's important that we don't accept statements related to the truth without first examining them. You know, Jeff touched on earlier the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, who were told were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they searched the scriptures daily to see if what the disciples, the Holy Spirit-filled apostles were teaching them and confirming that they weren't just telling them something that didn't line up with the scriptures. And so if what somebody says is not consistent with the truth, it has to be rejected. And in all fairness, out of love for the person who said it, we should show them of why it's wrong. So it's not saying, well, I think this. It's like, no, let's turn to God's word. You said this, but did you know that this is what God's word said? Very good chance that they didn't know that's what it said. Maybe they're simply repeating what they heard. 
the other thing is we want to be careful not to make rash statements or say something that sounds good without being sure that it is consistent with God's word. We saw early on in the podcast, we used Jeremiah as an example. Jeremiah stood firm for the truth. And as a result, he was like thrown in a well and he was harshly persecuted. But if you look at what he really did, he used the truth to break that rock, as it said there in the passage we read in Jeremiah, that the false teachers were claiming there will be peace. It shattered that. And so, you know, let us all be committed to do the same. Good points. So, Jeff, we've covered a lot of different statements throughout this podcast. If those who are listening want to dig in a little bit deeper, find out a little bit more information, what recommendations can you give them? Oh, we've got lots. (laughs) So if you go to our website, biblequestions.org, under the topics menu, here is basically a sampling. A for apostasy, synonym for falling away. C for church, the true. F for false teaching, feelings, and fellowship. S for sin and U for unity. I might also mention, if folks want to go to our podcast page, you'll also find previous podcasts on things like authority, Bible study, Calvinism, denominationalism, false teaching, and unity, all of which are very important subjects that we need to familiarize ourselves with, understand what the scriptures have to say, and apply it to our lives in some cases, regardless of what our religious teachers might be trying to tell us. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.